All right. Well, yeah, he, misses, everybody. He, misses, he misses the Tao. He just goes into the Torah stuff. <laughs> exactly. So this is now episode 10 of season two. Uh, welcome, folks. This is going to be a fun one, I think. Um, and we'll we'll get into the part that really excited me the most. I happened to uh, listen to some Ramdas this morning, and I sent it over to the chat. Uh, and I think you guys will really enjoy uh, reading it with me. So before we do that, just a couple of miscellaneous thoughts that I like to write down when I'm on the subway or whatever I'm doing. First one is polish the mirror. You know, and uh, I think w- while we practice, it doesn't have to be that you're polishing the mirror right now for some time in the future. It doesn't have to fully be an investment now for the future. Instead, it can be understood as in this very moment, realize that you are this mirror of reality. You are this, like like they say about Moshe Rabbeinu, you're the clear lens that is shining the light through it. So in this moment right now, polish your mirror. Um, the other thing I wrote down here is called spiritual alchemy. I think this is a really beautiful one. Um, this is almost that you imagine some kind of being, whether that be Hashem himself, um, you know, any kind of spiritual figure that you know of, and you imagine them somewhere in your consciousness. And whenever you experience suffering, you can give that being the suffering. And every time you breathe in, you imagine that being taking in all that suffering and converting it into light, converting it into liquid love. And that's what we call spiritual alchemy. And therefore, from then on, wherever you go, whatever you do, whoever you meet, every time you take that in-breath and you focus on sending any of that suffering towards this being of great love, you are an alchemist. You are the spiritual alchemist just in your breath. Uh, And here I wrote just the in-breath. So there's a famous, uh, you know, conversation between the Buddha and some of his students. Joseph Goldstein brings it down. And um, it kind of goes like, you know, what does it take to know the Buddha? And one student says, 60 minutes of meditation. The, uh, and the Buddha says, okay. The other student says, no, it's 30 minutes of meditation. The student says, okay. And then, uh, sorry, the Buddha says, okay. Um, then they say, well, no, it's actually just one breath in and one breath out. And the Buddha says, okay. And then the final student says all it takes is the in-breath and that's it so i want to just leave you with that just the in-breath is enough to know the buddha in a sense that's all you have to focus on usually the emphasis is on the out-breath because we talked about in the class nirvana yes 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 and it's a funny thing so don't wait for the outhale the exhale for to know the Buddha. Can I say one thing? The in breath. Yeah, Uncle Richie. I was gonna say to you, and you probably would get the gist of what I'm about to say to you. Yeah. Knowing the Buddha is not knowing the Buddha. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Knowing is not knowing. That you know, the need to know or to be the knower of knowledge is totally the wrong thing. And uh knowing of the no thing knowing the nothing is basically not like not knowing so you're hitting That's the why I said that. but in this in this realm of dualism uh we speak but but god forgive us you know <laughs> because we know that that our words don't quite capture the the reality and yet we speak anyway because why not you know mm-hmm. it's fun um i wrote here the angel channel so this is something I love to do while I'm uh, in the hospital. So I, I remember uh, I had one patient that came in very catatonic, you know, not able to speak almost, doing these repetitive movements. And the cure for that is a benzodiazepine Ativan. You inject him. And, you know, this was like a, a 14-year-old kid. 
And it was amazing. He was so psychotic that he became catatonic. You give the Ativan, it unlocks them. They're still psychotic, but now they're not catatonic. So I spoke to him just a half hour after getting the Ativan, and he's opening up to me, and he's telling me all these different things that he sees. And he tells me he sees Medusa, and he sees demons. I said, okay, what else do you see? He says, I see angels. I said, where do you see angels? He says, you're an angel. And at that moment, I was like taken aback. I was like, okay. Um, you know, what makes you think that I'm an angel? He says, because you're so beautiful. And I said, wow, thank you very much. You're beautiful too. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if I said that, you know, I don't know if that's appropriate to say to the page, but I think I said something along those lines. <laughs> and then for the rest of that day, I went around in the hospital and I said, what if this kid's right? You know, and I know they might want to lock me up for saying this or for thinking this, but I couldn't help myself. And I kept going around and thinking to myself, what if we really are all angels? What if everybody is just an angel in disguise? And that's a channel to tune into. At the same time, you can imagine everyone's a devil in disguise. I'm not taking that away from you. But, you know, when we are able to somehow slip into this consciousness of everyone around us as an angel, and that might be easier in some scenarios than others, why not sometimes indulge? And I think that's a beautiful therapeutic technique if you're going through a tough day at work just close your eyes and then for a second, take a deep breath and then open your eyes and imagine whoever it is that's sitting with you. You're an angel and everyone around you is like an angel. And I think you might find that your day uh, will be all the more beautiful for it. Amen. My, yes, I said a bit before. <laughs> so I wrote also as well here. Um this is about dark thoughts, and this is something we all go through. Everybody has thoughts that are less than beautiful, you know, and, and we, we've all gone through this experience of how could I think such a thing? Or I can't believe my mind would even go to such a place. And that's called split mindedness. And I think one of the most difficult parts of being a human being is this split mindedness. And when you take that split mindedness to its nth degree, you can get real pathology, you know, even worse than depression and anxiety, of course, would be some type of psychosis, people losing touch with reality, schizophrenia, meaning a split with reality. Uh, I had a patient recently with actually dissociative identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. And, and she's telling me all these different personalities that she has 16 different personalities, she was severely uh, sexually abused as a child, you know, really bad stuff. And it's clear to me that split mindedness kind of lies at the heart of all the pathology that that humans go through. So I wrote down here, what's the almost almost the solution to this? To split mindedness. To split mindedness that stems from dark thoughts. Split mindedness meaning separating yourself and your thoughts. Yes, yeah, separating yourself from your thoughts, meaning one thought from another thought and saying, I am not these thoughts, but that I am thought. Right? So you're 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 kind of splitting yourself into multiple pieces. And all of this is really stemming from resistance of dark thoughts. So I wrote down here, you can thank your dark thoughts for guarding you on the correct path. Because they show you where not to flow. That's what you can imagine dark thoughts as. They're guide, almost like a guideline or a, a northern star for how not to live. And you can say thank you to that thought. You can say thank you for showing me the path forward. Thank you for showing me what the path forward should not look like or won't look like in all likelihood. As Mark Twain says... Uh, or said, <laughs> um, some of the worst things in my life never even happened. And that's, you know, putting voice to the fact that our anxieties feel so real, right? But at the end of the day, they almost never happen. So uh, these are just some of my miscellaneous thoughts. And finally, I wrote down here, Ehad, which is, uh, you know, you, the word in Hebrew is Ehad, right? One. But the Hachamim say, when you're saying Shema, don't say Shema Yisrael Hashem Okino Hashem Ehad. Say Hashem Ehad. Because if you say Ehad, what that means is not one. <laughs> but the irony is, as Uncle Richie was pointing out a minute ago, 
that when you think about it, even the idea of one is not true. Because one, as, as a lot of the Jewish philosophers point out, implies not two. It implies uh, a category, you know, so one doesn't even quite get it. And I think the beauty in the word ehad is that hidden within it is ehad. It's one, but it's also not one. And I think that's just brilliant. And we're going to actually build upon this um, from one of these Chinese texts. Very similar to Advaita. Yes. Non-duality. As Judah likes to repeatedly say. Advaita. Advaita, non-duality. Exactly. That's why they use the term non-dual, because you can't call it one. One is a positive statement, and you can never make a positive statement. Instead, you can say it's not two, it's non-dual. Perfect. So let's... I want to ask you one thing before you move on. Sure, sure, sure. You mentioned something about dark thoughts. Yes. What I wanted to say about that was, if we're something I'm studying in the Kabbalah is Benoni. Yeah. Right? Benoni is a person that has dark thoughts and that's trying to do the right thing by not having those dark thoughts. Isn't that correct? I don't think being a Benoni is about the thoughts that you have, but in Judaism, it's so much about the actions that you take. So regardless of the thoughts that you have, it's very much about doing good actions. So Hashem doesn't judge us based on the things we think about, but rather Hashem judges us, you know, so to speak, based on the way that we behave. Judaism is very much about action. Um, Harambam does say, He says that the thoughts of sin are even more severe than the sin itself. And I think part of the reason he says that is because if you're constantly craving to do a certain kind of sin and it's so embedded within you, those thoughts almost become a part of who you are. But I think the whole point of the spiritual psychotherapy that we're engaging in is to try to help unlock and untangle a lot of the the, the these types of feelings, right? Like you're pointing out is that, you know, you want to run away from your thoughts, but in a sense, you are your thoughts as well. But in the same, at the same time, you're not your thoughts. So what do you do? The answer is, you know, I think in a, in a certain way, you can put distance between yourself and your thoughts, but not with another thought. And I think, you know, for me to, to, to try to speak about it further wouldn't make sense. But instead, I'm going to actually give over the reins to Zhuang Zhao. Um, uh, sorry, not to Zhuang Zhao. To, sorry, to uh, the Sin Sin Ming. Which is, <laughs> where's ID when you need him? Um, this is a, a traditional Chinese text. Yes. Say it again. Good segue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, listen, it all connects. It's all perfect. That, that's the whole point that I wrote Ehad before this, because I knew it was going to connect. Um, but what is the Sin Sin Ming, or the Shin Shin Ming, means faith in mind. It's a poem attributed to the third Chinese Zen patriarch named Zhangji Sengchan. Um, and it, it basically, this guy or this, this the notion that he's running based upon is the idea that the mind is Buddha as well. The thoughts are Buddha as well. Every thought you have is part of the Tao, is part of the Buddha nature. And... That means that it doesn't make sense to try to be split-minded, to just rather let the thought pass. And like I tell all my patients, you can imagine a river. And when things get overwhelming, really visualize that river and visualize yourself taking the thought or taking the motion and placing it in the river and watching it flow down that river. It's a very powerful technique that's basically like CBT, like a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, so without any further ado, let's read from the Xin Xin Ming, um, from this third Chinese patriarch of Zen. So he says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold 
no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. So he's starting off here with this idea of non-duality. And how do you get to non-duality? Well, you have to kind of find yourself in a place without love, without hate, without opinions of what's good and what's bad. So let's keep reading. The way is perfect, like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things and such erroneous views will disappear by themselves. When you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. As long as you remain in one extreme or the other, you will never know oneness. Those who do not live in the single way fail in both activity and passivity, assertion and denial. To deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. To assert the emptiness of things is to miss their reality. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. It's, it's really a guided meditation in a way to how to continue to dwell moment to moment in this oneness, or as we said, more precisely, the non-dual. To return to the root is to find the meaning, but to pursue appearances is to miss the source. At the moment of inner enlightenment, there is going beyond appearance and emptiness. The changes that appear to occur in the empty world we call real only because of our ignorance. Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Do not remain in the dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. Although all dualities come from the one, do not be attached even to this one. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. To me, that is so brilliant. What he's saying is when you find that things are offending you or bothering you, you can notice that that's because you're not in this state of understanding reality as it is. You're lost in a certain type of confusion because you're lost in this preferences for good and pushing away the evil. And the, the, the irony is, in a way, part of your nature is to do exactly that, to push away the bad and, and cling to the good. And it's when you, when you try to fight against that nature, that's when you create the clinging and the aversion. But when you just fully accept that you, that you have clinging and aversion, there you are in that realm of the non-dual. But it takes a full acceptance of your nature, of the fact that you can't help but do this. And then you finally give up that control. So the way to, to notice how to not be offended in a sense is just to bring yourself back to this equanimous state where it's not about insides and outsides. It's not about me over here and you over there, me over here and my thought over there. It's just one happening. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. When thought objects vanish, the thinking subject vanishes. As when the mind vanishes, objects vanish. Things are objects because of the subject mind. The mind subject 
as such because of things, objects. Understand the relativity of these two and the basic reality, the unity of emptiness. In this emptiness, the two are indistinguishable and each contains in itself the whole world. If you do not discriminate between coarse and fine, you will not be tempted to prejudice and opinion. So it's the same idea over and over again, that if you understand that it's all relative, that there are no insides without outsides, there is no up without down, and the mind is constantly making these distinctions, the more you can allow yourself to understand, wow, I, as the observer, was creating this experience of there being stuff that was observed. But when you don't have any discriminating thoughts, you, as the observer, vanish. And all that's left is the experience itself. And where you once were is just emptiness. So if you do not discriminate between coarse and fine, you will not be tempted to, to prejudice and opinion. So somehow you kind of, in a in a sense, you want to get to this place where you're not discriminating, but it's not even a want anymore. It just already is. To live in the great way is neither easy nor difficult. But those with limited views are fearful and irresolute. The faster they hurry, the slower they go. And clinging or attachment cannot be limited. Even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. Just let things be in their own way. And there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. When thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear. And the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefit can be derived from distinctions and separation? If you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. The wise man strives to know goals, but the foolish man fetters himself. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. To seek mind with the discriminating mind is the greatest of all mistakes. So the answer is, stop seeking. You are already found. Rest and unrest derive from illusion. With enlightenment, there is no liking and disliking. All dualities come from ignorant inference. They are like dreams or flowers in air, foolish to try to grasp them. Gain and loss, right and wrong, such thoughts must finally be abolished at once. If the eye never sleeps, all dreams will naturally cease. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are, of single essence. To understand the mystery of this one essence is to be released from all entanglements. When all things are seen equally, the timeless self-essence is reached. No comparisons or analogies are possible in this causeless, relationless state. So I think part of the key here is that there is no goal in this experience. There is no purpose. It itself is the purpose. It itself is the meaning. And that's why it's so often compared to music or vibrations of strings or dancing. That's why they call it the Vishnu Lila, right? The dancing of one of these Hindu gods. That everything is just that because it doesn't serve a higher purpose of any sort. It itself is that higher purpose. And if you can experience reality as that, in this moment, you notice that what you, where you thought you were is now totally disappeared. And it's all the entire universe since the beginning of the Big Bang until this very moment. It's all one happening. Consider movement stationary 
and the stationary in motion. Both movement and rest disappear. When such dualities cease to exist, oneness itself cannot exist. To this ultimate finality, no law or description applies. It's amazing because I was sitting on the subway and watching the the outside world moving, moving. as the as the subway car that I was in was was speeding ahead. And you you think about this, consider movement stationary and the stationary in motion. And that was incredible. So I imagined myself who was moving to be stationary. And I imagined the world around me to really be what's moving because it's all relative. And when you reverse these things, it allows you to stop clinging to the perspective that you've held for so long. So if you, for a second, stop focusing right in between your eyes, where you're always focusing, where you always think that your attention is focused out of, Focus on something like the back of your head and notice how much attention you have there. Focus on your the center of your chest, your left, you know, big toe. Any of these things can be the center of awareness. It's just a matter of what we're so used to. For the unified mind in accord with the way, all self-centered striving ceases. Doubts and irresolutions vanish. And life in true faith is possible. With a single stroke, we are freed from bondage. Nothing clings to us, and we hold to nothing. All is empty, clear, self-illuminating, with no exertion of the mind's power. Here, thought, feeling, knowledge, and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. To come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say, when doubts arise, not to. Just keep repeating that to yourself. Not to. In this not to, nothing is separate. Nothing is excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And this truth is beyond extension or diminution in time or space. In it, a single thought is 10,000 years. Emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before your eyes, infinitely large and infinitely small. No difference, for definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. So too with being and non-being. Don't waste time in doubts and arguments that have nothing to do with this. One thing, all things move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Words, the way, is beyond language. For in it, there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. So that's the end of it. I love the the end here because, you know, obviously it's pointing out that our words can never come close to, to this experience. But but what he's talking about here is the trusting mind. And I, I would almost say it's it's even a little bit like the humorous mind. Because when you see the humor and the fact that there is nothing that's not part of this, you stop being so afraid to think thoughts, or to feel feelings. And if you do feel fear, that's part of the Tao as well. Anything and everything is welcome. And you stop being afraid of making mistakes. Now, somebody might say, well, isn't this bad? You're not going to be in control. You might make more mistakes. I would argue the opposite. I would argue that the more you free yourself of this neuroticism about making more and more mistakes, the more you free yourself about this neuroticism of thinking the wrong thing, the more you are at peace and the more you'll do what most consider to be the right thing, but you know, to just be the thing, <laughs> right? So that's the Shin Shin Ming. I, I find that really, really just, it really blew me away. Um, we'll spend a little bit more time on this stuff. I want to read to you a little bit from Alan Watts, 
regarding what he calls wisdom of the ridiculous or virtues of the fool. So he talks about um, his book. The name of this guy is Zhuangzi. So in his book, sometimes called simply the Zhuangzi book, is quite unique in the whole history of philosophy because he's almost the only philosopher from the, from, from the whole of antiquity who has real humor, and therefore he's an immensely encouraging person to read. So this guy named Zhuangzi is absolutely hilarious in a certain way because he pushes things beyond the limit. But part of his humor is the art of exaggeration, and you always have to allow for that. You always have to, to realize that he's slightly pulling his own leg. He is, as in a group of people who are enthusiasts for something but have humor, you very often find that when they're talking among themselves, they carry their own ideas to ludicrous extremes and roar with laughter about it. And Zhuang Zhao does exactly that. Now, for example, he has a great deal to say about the value of the useless life. So this is building on what we just spoke about. You know, we're so trained from such a young age to be uh, accomplishing things, to achieve, to do this for the sake of that. But this mindset, the Taoist mindset, the Taoists are known for loving things because of their being valuable in and of themselves. So the other day, you know, I was with my friends and I was watching these birds just flying off into the distance and deal in nature. And I was absolutely mesmerized. And just the the experience of watching these birds was just for its own sake. And that's why I loved it. Yeah, but what's the future in that? That's exactly Joe knows. Joe knows. Oh. There it's not about the future in it. It reflects our own insanity. Exactly, right? The the, the very fact that we say, oh, and then what? And what'd you do with it? No, that's the point. The point is that there was no point, and that's why I enjoyed it, right? Now, for example, he has a great deal to say about the value of the useless life. The whole notion of something, of life, any moment in life or any event in life being useful, that is to say, serving the end of some future event in life, is to a Taoist absurd, right? To a Taoist, it's the exact opposite of us. To us, it's absurd to, to, to think that it's beautiful when things don't have any purpose, but to a Taoist, to think that you're doing something for some kind of absolute final purpose, that's the absurdity. So we would look at a Taoist like they're absurd and like they're crazy. And they'll look at us like we're crazy. Why? Because nothing is useful at all in their mind. The universe is viewed as purposeless and useless through and through. Because it's a game. More than that, game doesn't really convey the sense of this. When a Taoist sage is wandering through the forest, he isn't going anywhere. He's just wandering. When he watches the clouds, he loves them because they have no special destination. He watches birds moving around. He watches the waves lapping on the shore. And just because all this is not busy in the way that human beings are busy, because it serves no end other than being what it is now, it is for that reason that he admires it. And it is for that reason that you get the peculiar styles of Chinese painting in the Tang, Song, and later dynasties, where nature, in its wayward wandering nature, is the main subject. The joy for the Taoist is that things have no use, and the future is not important. Now, you can exaggerate this, and Zhuang Zhao does in a very humorous way, by describing the ideal useless man. Who is this ideal useless man? He's a hunchback. And he's so deformed that his chin rests on his navel and so on. But he says, now, this man is very admirable. Why? He's found the secret of life. Because when the social service workers come around, he's the first to get a free handout. And when the military officers come around to conscript people for the army, he's the first to be rejected. Therefore, he lives long. <laughs> I think this is amazing. So it's, it's obviously exaggerated, but... He's trying to drive across the point here. And then he also describes the case of some travelers who came across an enormous tree, fantastic thing. And they said, never did anyone see such a tree. So they went up and looked at it. And first they tasted, they tested the leaves and found that they were rough and disagreeable and no good to eat. Then they looked at the branches and found they were all twisted and absolutely no good for using as sticks. Then they examined the wood and found that it was full of pith and absolutely useless for a carpenter. 
So nobody had disturbed this tree. It was not used for cutting down or any purpose whatsoever. And so it grew to an enormous size and it was of great age. Because it was purposeless, it just continued in its way. Now Zhuang Zhao is here pulling our legs. He's not exactly asking us to take all that literally, but this is his way of doing things. Then also he describes the behavior of the high form of man. And he says, the man of character. That is, in this case, the word do we, were we discussed, oh, sorry, uh, he's saying were we discussing yesterday. The man of character lives at home without exercising his mind and performs actions without worry. The notions of right and wrong and the praise and blame of others do not disturb him. When within the four seas, all people can enjoy themselves, that is happiness for him. When all people are well provided, that is peace for him. Sorrowful in countenance, he looks like a baby who has lost its mother. Appearing stupid, he goes about like one who has lost its way. He has plenty of money to spend and does not know where it comes from. He drinks and eats just enough and does not know where the food comes from. This is the demeanor of the man of character. Then by contrast, the hypocrites are those people who regard as good whatever the world claims as good and regard as right whatever the world claims is right. When you tell them that they are men of Tao, then their countenances change with satisfaction. When you call them hypocrites, then they look displeased. All their lives they call themselves men of Tao, and all their lives they remain hypocrites. <laughs> They know how to give a good speech and tell appropriate anecdotes in order to attract a crowd. But from the very beginning to the very end, they do not know what it's all about. They put on the proper garb and dress in the proper colors and put on a decorous appearance in order to make themselves popular, but refuse to admit that they're hypocrites. They're torn. All right, so this is the, the trap of someone like me or a Ramdas or an Alan Watts is you, you get so much satisfaction from your own personal practice but at the same time the the if you're doing this for the sake of the praise of people that you admire or for the avoidance of blame and any kind of criticism that's not really the Tao. if i'm giving this class right now in the hopes that you guys will all shower me with praise and say michael you did such a great job thank you so much then that wouldn't be the Tao. I mean, it would be the Tao in some sense, <laughs> but it wouldn't be the pure experience of the Tao as we probably hope to see it with more clarity. So let's continue reading. So that's that's something I am trying, you know, in a sense. I don't even have to try. I just notice it. Like, okay, there's my desire for praise and my desire to not be criticized. There it is. There it goes. The deep left. It is high as far it has gone. Right, that's kind of the experience of life now. So you know, in work, people see me, and I'm not the most professional person. My coworkers will tell you that, but I think it comes from a very thorough part of myself that is like, "Are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to take this seriously right now because I've been through enough experiences in my life to not care that much if you're going to praise me or blame me or what it is. I, I, I'm a generally agreeable person." to the degree that I'm not looking to get into some massive fight or argument that's going to stop me from just being the way that I like to be and flowing the way I like to flow. But that doesn't mean at the same time that I'm going to try to kiss anyone's behind. Because to me, it's all just part of this game that we're playing. And that's the freedom. The freedom is when you can let go to the degree where you have fun with it. And it's very humorous. And you can say things that most other people probably wouldn't say in work. And yet you say it because why the hell not? What's really going to happen? I might eat those words one day. We'll see. <laughs> you guys stick around for the next class. <laughs> but this explanation of the man who is stupid in countenance and appearance and is wandering about as if he has lost his way and doesn't know anything. Of course, it's based on the text in Lao Tzu where he, re where he says, the people of the world are merrymaking as if partaking of the sacrificial feasts as if mounting the terrace in spring, I alone am mild like one unemployed, like a newborn babe that cannot yet smile, unattached like one without a home. The people of the world have enough and despair, but I am like one left out. My heart must be that of a fool, muddled, nebulous, the vulgar, unknowing, luminous, 
I alone am thou, confused. The vulgar are clever, selfish, assured. I alone depressed, patient as the sea, adrift, seemingly aimless. The people of the world all have a purpose. I alone appear stubborn and uncouth. I alone differ from, from the other people and value drawing sustenance from the mother. All right, so we'll pause there for now. But I think it's really quite beautiful the way that Alan Watts is able to, you know, bring down a lot of these teachings and show you the Taoist is enjoying these things for the very sake that they don't have a sake, that they don't have a purpose. And when you find yourself so enmeshed in so many purposeful, quote unquote, things in life, you might just find that you want to slit your wrists because a life for some other sake is not a life. It's just putting off any kind of enjoyment or pleasure or, and it just becomes absolutely unbearable. Although purpose and meaning does seem to be a fundamental human need, at least like, like for the past, I don't know, how many thousands of years with our development. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I agree with you. And I think that the, the, the beauty is that when you can combine this type of mindset with the very meaningful traditions that we have and i'm not saying don't do any meaningful pursuits do them but as you're doing them do them with in a meaningless way and, and what do i mean in a meaningless way not exactly like that i mean do it in a fun way mm -hmm. do it in a musical way so think i go to work and i do very meaningful work i get to watch people go from clinically insane to back to their reality or yeah. back to the reality that we all share. I get to watch people, you know, think that the world is burning down to fully, fully calm mm. and at peace. And that's very meaningful work. Mm. But if I go in all the time thinking to myself, I'm doing this for the sake of the patient and it's vitally important that the patient gets better and I need to be this person that helps them get better and all my time is you know, totally dedicated to the betterment of this person, I would not enjoy what I do. I think part of what makes me a fun doctor for some of these patients is I'm able to just go in there and flow with it. And I have fun. I try to, you know, I try to actually, uh, you know, strike up an interesting conversation for me too. I don't want to talk about whatever the patient is talking about necessarily. Some people might say, oh, that's not you're too much counter-transference. You're not the best doctor. I would say, no, if I'm not in it, I'm going to be real with myself. If I'm not interested in what the patient's talking about, I'm not spending too much time on that. You know, maybe that's not good. Okay, so be it. Sue me. <laughs> don't, go, don't come to me on Monday morning if you don't like that. But the point is, I am trying to enjoy what I'm doing in the process. And it's not all about these goals. And I think we can and should continue to pursue the traditionally understood meaningful things. But the process of doing them can be done in a fun and musical way. That's to me, I hope that makes sense yeah. in a sense, but that's to me the, the most beautiful way that I've been able to really uh, engage in purposeful things in a purposeless way. <laughs> it makes you more yeah. effective. I think in a way it makes you ironically able to con complete that task in a better way. Without the, without the anxiety. 100%. I, I, you know what? Because to be honest, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, just to keep letting it flow. There's, no, I don't have any absolute need for things to work out. Yeah, there's a. Mm -hmm. I think probably the same talk of Alan quoted mm -hmm. Robert Day Oppenheimer. Oh, uh, you know, quoted yeah. of, of the bomb, <laughs> the atomic bomb. That uh, it's perfectly obvious that the world is going to hell, and the only way to prevent that from happening is to not try to prevent. Ah, uh, yes. In exactly. other words, like with all of the anxiety that you'll save up, yes. all the RAM, yeah. all that, all that, all that computing power in exactly. that you spend on anxiety, having freed that up, you will actually be able to productively, efficiently. That's my biggest problem with with a lot of the left, you know, the radical left and the social justice warriors, and you name it, is that they think that they're going to solve all the world's ills. But they're just swinging the, the pendulum so far in the other direction that they're creating many more problems than existed in the first place. So if you have to demonize the the, the, the patriarchy, um, and you, you know, and you're you're trying to create all these inroads in in the world, 
in a sense, you're really just uh, making things a lot you're worse. Sowing the seeds of hatred. Exactly. You're talk about love. You just in your heart. Yes, in a way, you're creating even more negative karma. Right. Is the way I'd say. Okay. Talk, talk about or what you sent me about. Yeah. The guy said his. My life is my message. Uh, when I do things. The beautiful. At that moment is absolutely, point. absolutely. It's it's the experience itself is the point, and the 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 way that I live and the way that I behave, the vibe that I am, speaks my message a lot more than the words and the the you know the supposed uh, way that people speak about what a person does. It's just the vibe and the way that they carry themselves. Right. Uh, so let's jump a little bit to the Zohar now. With uh, you know, we start a little bit late, so we have a little bit of time. That's right, the heebie-jeebies. So Rabbi Azar Patah ve'Amar. So we left off last time talking about uh, seeing it of him and Nasavas. And now Rabbi Azar opens up and he says, "How immense is your goodness that you have hidden away for those in awe of you? How great!" And this is a pasuk in Tehillim, "Marav tuvecha." Right, how great is the precious supernal goodness, the, the blessed holy one, Akalashwar intends to lavish upon humanity for the supremely righteous, dreading sin, engaging in Torah when they enter that world. Right. So when these Sadiqim enter the world that is waiting for them, how great is that goodness? The verse does not read your goodness, but rather your immense goodness. Who is that? The memory of your immense goodness they express, right? We read that also in Tehillim from Tehillah from Ashreh. Joy of life flowing from the world that is coming to vitality of the worlds, who is the memory of your immense goodness, immense goodness for the house of Israel. Right? So what in the world is going on here? So Rabbi Al-Azad says, Zecher really is like Zachar. It's like the, um, the Sefira of Yesod the divine male who transmits the flow of emanation from the upper sefirot to Shekhinah. Um, and the cited verse is fitting because Yesod is also known as good. So, marav tuvecha, right? So, it's good, it's tov. Um, and the, we're talking here about olam haba. So, this uh, this idea of alma de'ateha, olam haba, the world that is to come. And it doesn't mean a world that is after you die, but it's, it's currently existing in another plane of reality, and another dimension. Um, and Yesod is also known as vitality of the worlds, who channels the flow of emanation to Shekhinah. And House of Israel is also known as Shekhinah. Right? So this all these ideas are just trying to say that the, the righteous after they die are going to get a full glimpse of this goodness that's been emanating down all the way through Yesod into Shekhinah and into our world. But they're going to get a glimpse of that upper world. Further, how immense is your goodness? Here is engraved a mystery of wisdom. All mysteries intimated here. Ma, right? So we're saying, Ma Rav if you remember from earlier classes, what is Ma? Ma means how, as has been explained, right? Ma, but also Ma, we said, means Shekhinah. It means the Sefirah that's at the very bottom of the divine personality, and is going to actualize everything. And it's funny because matter, ma, 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 as Alan Watts would say, is the suchness, is the something of reality. Ma, 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 what is it? What is it? Ma, mama, mommy, right? That's what it is. It is this. Almost done, Gerard. Um, thank you. Sorry, sorry to keep you waiting. Yeah. So ma, how, as has been explained, right? So we're talking about Shekhinah, immense, the immense and mighty tree, for there is another smaller tree, but this one is immense, penetrating the vault of heaven. All right, so the immense and mighty tree, right? Because it's Rav Tuvecha. Rav would be Tef'eret, but Tuvecha, just the Ma, is the Shekhinah, the smaller tree. Uh, but this one is immense, penetrating the vault of heaven. Your goodness, the light created on the first day. Right, so Tuvecha, right? Vayar Elohim Kitov, when Hashem created the Or and the Hoshech, the Or from the Hoshech, it says Hashem saw that it was good. So Tov is obviously talking about the light created on that first day, the Ora Ganuzah Sadikim that's hidden away, that you've hidden away for those in all of you, for he concealed it for the righteous in that world. Right? Hashem concealed the 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 light of that first day uh for the Sadikim after they die. Uh, or maybe for while they are truly alive. Um so 
It says, because in the Pasuk in, in, in Eov says, the light of the wicked is withheld. For whom did he hide it? For the righteous in the time to come. Very famous Midrash. But where are we going with this? That you made, also from that Pasuk, the upper garden of Eden. Ah, so now it gets interesting. As is written, the place you have made to dwell in, O Hashem. Right? This is that you have made for you for those who take refuge in you. In the presence of human beings, the lower garden of Eden, where all righteous abide in spirit, clothed in a splendid garment resembling the image of this world. So what's going on here? So the upper garden of Eden is talking about these sefirot. But the lower garden of Eden is, so the upper garden is saying Shekhinah, right? The divine presence and dwelling, the combination of the emanation that was made. Shekhinah actualizes the various divine qualities, but all the righteous abide. Where are they abiding? So this is a really interesting midrash. They say, righteous souls who have departed this world abide in the Garden of Eden, clothed in an ethereal body resembling their previous human form. The soul is clothed in this garment before descending to earth, retains it while in the physical body until shortly before death, and then regains it upon ascending. So there's this idea that the soul is wearing some kind of ethereal human garment after um, you know, sorry, before it goes into the world, and then after it dies, it also wears this ethereal human garment. Um, and I think all of this is really building up to uh, the next derasha, but we'll see that probably next week. We'll finish this paragraph. Uh, this is naked in the presence of human beings and the image of human beings in, of this world. There they stand, they, they then fly through the air, ascending to the academy of heaven in that upper garden of Eden, they soar and bathe in the dew of rivers and pure ba- of pure balsam. Right? So it says in the Midrash that these Sadiqim are going to bathe in 13 rivers of Besamim. And we know 13 is Gematria of Ehad. Then descend and dwell below. Sometimes they appear in the presence of human beings, enacting miracles for them like celestial angels, as we just saw the radiance of the high lamp. So we, they're saying, Rav HaMenunah is one of these people. We spoke about him last week. He's one of these individuals who clothed himself in his ethereal garb after dying, but can still appear in this world in some way to guide the human beings of our plane, though we were not privileged to contemplate and discover further mysteries of wisdom. So they're talking about right now this very strange experience, which is that after a person dies, he can go into this quasi-state of being a soul still, clothing himself in this ethereal garb, and somehow having access to the human realm. And just as a sneak preview, we're going to see next week, very, very beautifully, uh, no less than Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is going to be somebody who is going to have an experience exactly like this. And I think it's beautiful to to point this out at the end of the class because we spend a lot of time on very pure Buddhism and Zen and a lot of this non-dual stuff. But that doesn't mean that there aren't ways of playing around even within this, you know, because words are just words anyway. And especially in the Hindu traditions, they have ideas of different, you know, reincarnations. And there's ways of talking about the self or non-self. So just like we could talk about the non-self, we could also talk about the self manifesting as multiple different types of souls. And the way that those souls interact and intermingle, that's also part of this grand beauty and the grand symphony. And I think next week we're going to read this very, very beautiful, moving story about um, what happens with the children, the ch- sorry, the child of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Al-Azhar, and Rabbi Abba. And when they encounter um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his experience as well. Uh, we'll pick it up next time. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Thank you very much for coming. Uncle Richie, you're the best. Laila Tov.